Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined this time by the writer Laura Marley. Laura is the author of five novels as well as numerous short stories and plays. She studied for a degree in business administration at Strathclyde University in Glasgow before taking up a post as a medical sales rep. She returned to education and graduated from the prestigious master's course in creative writing at the University of Glasgow and she was later to become a tutor on that same course for many years. Not only has Laura written five novels, but I think it's fair to say that she would also win any prize for the best book titles. Who wouldn't want to read No Wonder I Take a Drink, Nobody Loves a Ginger Baby, or Only Strange People Go to Church as just three examples. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's really good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I, I do, and I've always loved the titles of your books. Well, I always try to be a wee bit cheeky and a wee bit funny with the titles and just to have a title that make people think, oh, I don't know if I agree with that and maybe want to look into it a bit further. It's a marketing ploy. But I suppose it's the same, you know that way that people always judge judge a book by its cover and then when you think of books are in bookshops, obviously the cover has to stand out, but then people will pick up those books because, as I say, when the first time I ever saw your book, Nobody Loves a Ginger Baby, it made me laugh and you immediately want to know more about that book. That kind of backfired on me a wee bit, that one, because lots of people, there was a bit of a kind of a ratings war going on on Amazon. People were giving it zero, or I don't even think you can give it zero. They gave it one star. They said, I've never read this book and I never will read this book. Just the title alone <laughs> has made me give it one star. So that was really dropping my ratings. I was getting like loads of five stars, four stars. And this was dropping my ratings really badly. So the newspaper um, got hold of this and phoned me up and said, well, what do you make of this? And I said, well, I don't think, you, I, I literally don't think you can talk about a book and say how you would never read it and you would never recommend it if you haven't actually read it. And uh, it's not anything against red hair people. If anything, it's a celebration of yeah. red hair. And uh, I said to the guy, look, I've got red hair. My daughter's got red hair. Even my dog's got red hair. And he goes... <laughs> He goes, well, we have to get a photograph of that. (laughs) (laughs) So they came and they took a photograph of of me and my daughter and my wee wee red dog. (laughs) But it has backfired. Loads of people have said, I would never buy that book because it's it's racist against redheads. No, it isn't. It really isn't. It is a provocative title, but it isn't against redheads at all. And then sometimes it works the opposite way. At book signings, usually women will come up and they'll say, I'm buying this one for my friend Carol. And then they'll giggle and go, she's got red hair. <laughs> <laughs> so I just giggle along as well. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of the, I just highlight obviously that the titles and they do stand out. At what point when you're, you know, you come up with the idea for the book, at what point does the title crystallise? Is that quite early on or is that something that just, when, when you get to the stage where you know you're going to get it published, you think, right, I better come up with a good title here? Well, no, the first time around I had absolutely no idea what to call it. And uh, it was quite long, hard searching for the title. That is uh, No Wonder I Take a Drink. And I like that title. I'm tough with that title. 
but then the, the second book, I, I, I was starting to do that. I was starting to come up with the title before I was coming up with a book. That's not a good way to go, I don't think. There needs to be mystery in my head for me to continue writing. And if I know absolutely, and especially if I know what the title is, it kind of takes edge of it, off it for me a wee bit. So, so I try my hardest not to do that. And the last book, which was called For Fawkey's Sake, because it, it's uh, named after the wee town Fawkey, where the book is set. And it's just like FFS. And also the idea being it's a bit, it could sound like something else. But yeah, so that's my approach. That was the other two I was going to mention, that one, and also the other book, My Best Friend Has Issues. So, as I said, if there's any prizes, you would win them for best titles. Well, sadly there aren't. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, I've actually tried my hardest to move away from that because I don't want the book to be reduced to one strapline, you know. I want want for me to be able to explore it wherever the book was going to take me when I'm actually writing it, rather than being hemmed in by this title. Now, in terms of the, the podcast, my idea always is with guests is kind of to take you on your own, the literary journey of your, your life. And we always start, obviously, okay. at the beginning, going back to childhood. And the first question I always ask people is the, the favourite book from childhood. And the book that you had given me was The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. That was a huge book in my life. A, I loved it. It was a great book. It was a great story. It was dead fun. It was exciting. He was a great character. There were all great characters in it. But the thing that really sealed it for me was I can't remember how old I was. I'd be somewhere between seven and ten. I'm not entirely sure. And the teacher asked everyone to bring in their favourite book and read from it. I brought in Tom Sawyer and I decided to read a scene in it where Tom tries to kiss his girlfriend Becky. And for seven-year-olds, this is the most shocking, delicious thing on earth. So the whole class, all the girls were giggling and screaming and all the boys were squirming in their seats, you know. <laughs> boys of that age are disgusted by the idea of, of uh, kissing and girls are really quite excited about it. So the atmosphere in the room was electric and I just thought, wow, just by reading out a couple of scenes from a book, you can have this effect on people. Like, you know, how to win friends and influence people. So I thought that for me early on was, uh, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should stand up and read out to people and have this kind of reaction from them. It's a great book. I've, seen, I've read it. I've, I've, I've read it in Spanish, which was not easy. And I've seen every uh, film version of it. It's just, it's a great story. Because I was going to ask you, you know, that you, quite often it's, it's always a, a thing, I think, particularly when you're speaking to writers, you're always curious to find out when that, is that a kind of passion you're born with or at what point is there something that crystallises for you and, you know, for you to be able to remember back and almost, even if that stage you're not saying, I want to be a writer, but you're, it's suddenly implanted in your head the power and the magic yeah. of words and what they can do to other Absolutely. people. Absolutely. That was it. That's what made me think. I couldn't believe I got this reaction from these people. And I knew the the scene itself would be a bit racy for the class, you know. But I had no idea the power, as you say, and that's just the power of the words. And so that's really made me think about, if not actually writing, then certainly performing. I was going to say that, that sometimes, and again, whenever I've, maybe sometimes I've read interviews with comedians, for example, and very often it's an example from their childhood where suddenly maybe they think they're the class clown, but suddenly they say something or do something and the class laughs and they go, oh, wait a minute, I'm onto something here. Yeah. So you, yeah. you were maybe, you were toying with either being a, a stand-up or a, a writer. <laughs> oh, I can never be a stand-up. I, I'm too scared to be a stand-up. I mean, quite often when you do, when you go to like a kind of book reading, a, a live literature Scotland event, you stand up, you tell a couple of stories how the book came to be. And the more you do it, the more you know that people like this or all laugh at this particular thing. So by the end of it, it's a bit of a stand-up routine you've got. 
But uh, I would be terrified to stand on a stage and do actual stand-up. Do you like the, the, the whole aspect of the public performance of your work? I do. I know I have to be honest and say I do I enjoy that. I, you know, there's a lot of things I don't like about the whole writing business, but that's not one of them. I do quite enjoy that. I do get quite a buzz out of that. Well, if people like it, you know, it's hard to tell because they're always going to be polite. It's not like a, like a stand-up comedian uh, is met with silence if they're not good. Yeah. Whereas I'm expecting to be silent <laughs> when I'm reading my stuff out, you know, so it is different. It is slightly different. Yeah, and it's unlikely that you're going to get heckled as well. No, or, I've or never been heckled, I must admit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not really, no. Well, the, the very first book launch I had, I very stupidly, because I used to teach aerobics as well, I very stupidly invited my aerobics classes, and they were all just a bunch of women who, were, who weren't used to getting out of an evening. So they were all sitting in the audience. They'd never been to a book launch in their life. They didn't really know what it was all about. They were just shouting out things to me. Well, I was on the stage, so I'm trying to be all literary and respectable, and they're all going, Laura, hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all saying, give us a great vine. Now, that's like a, an aerobics move. That would have been a different fun. kind of book launch. Yeah, I, could have, I, should, I really should have done that. The first writer to, to bring that into my performance. In terms of Tom Sawyer, one of the things which I'm curious about, you know, like sometimes whenever you're reading criticism of it now in terms of the, the language and, you know, I think it was published back in 1876, so the kind of language and portrayal of certain groups in America, is, is that something that you just, you know, it's obviously of its time, but it's, I know sometimes there's people that would make moves to maybe edit it, but does that take something away because of the language and it takes it out of context then? I would have absolutely no problem with it being edited, but with any dodgy language being edited, because they, they wouldn't be editing any of the sentiment. None of the, There's no kind of racist sentiment in it that I can remember, but certainly the language would need to be updated. But I would have absolutely no problem with that, because, and I'm sure Mark Twain would have no problem with that either. For all we know, he might still be alive. Reports of his death could still well be greatly <laughs> exaggerated. <laughs> If I take you on from uh, your favourite book from childhood and then we just take a step forward into kind of more formative student teenage years and the book that you've chosen for that is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. I mean, I know people might think that's a bit of a cheesy choice because it's been all over the telly and they've had all those series. I thought the first series was really good and I thought the second series was quite good but then I kind of lost interest in it after that. But the actual, you know, original text, the original manuscript, is a, a tremendous piece of art, a tremendous piece of speculative fiction, yeah, yeah, rather than sci-fi. But, I mean, it's a really tremendously informed piece of speculation. I just think it's a fantastic book. I think it will always be a fantastic book. I had the honour of meeting uh, Margaret Atwood and having lunch with her, a group of us from the university, and I got her to sign my copy, and I had a good chat with her about it. I've always been really excited by that book, and until recently I used to teach it. I was always finding new things in it, new wonderful things in it, the poetry in it, everything about it is just a fantastic book. It should be required reading, it really should be. One of the things that I was, when I was just doing a wee bit of research ahead of this podcast, and I found this quote from Margaret Atwood, and it's actually in relation to the book. It's quite a scary quote, yeah. I think, because she's quoted as saying, I didn't put in anything that we hadn't already done, as in society to women. We're not already yeah. doing, or we're not seriously trying to do. And when you read that and you think, and she's writing that back in 1985, and then you fast forward yeah. now and you think, Again, particularly what's maybe happening in some of the states in America and, and some of the laws are trying to bring in it. It's quite scary. And it wasn't like a pure work of her imagination. She saw these things were happening. 
Well, I mean, all the, you know how they, they, they sneak the women out and they, I think she even uses the term the Underground Railroad. So it's all, it's all along the, the same lines as what happened with black escapees with in the, the Underground Railroad. But yeah, I think apparently everything that's in the book has already happened in one shape or form, which is quite terrifying. Obviously, it's come back into the public consciousness because of the TV series, as you say, but also the fact uh-huh. that the, the Testaments, the sequel, ended up being the joint Booker, Booker Prize winner. How, do, how yeah. do the two books compare in your eyes? I, I thought it was a bit of a pot boiler, if I'm honest. I mean, I hate to say that because I, I love Margaret Atwood. I really do. But um, nah, I think it was maybe written a bit too quickly. And no, I didn't think it was a worthy um, companion. And But I do think that she should have won the Booker Prize a long time ago. So I don't, th- I don't, I have no problem with her winning the prize, but the book, nah, I didn't think it was very good. I didn't think it was a, a match. Because sometimes I'd, I'd imagine, you know, for any author that writes a book of that magnitude, i.e. The Handmaid's Tale, I yeah. suppose on one hand there's maybe the temptation either from them or the pressure from the publishers to write a sequel because there's an audience, but that pressure from the writer's point of view, because as you say, if, if something is set such a high standard, a high benchmark, how do you... How do you match them? I, I mean, one of the Mantell's books, I suppose, certainly the first two, she's, she hit the bar with both of them. So, I mean, she, she was writing that when she was a younger woman. I mean, she, I think she said she, she had it all planned very quickly. And I think she wrote it quite quickly as well. So, she, you know, she was a young woman. She was burning with passion. She's a much older woman. She's a much more experienced and wiser woman. Obviously, it's going to be two different perspectives. And the and the second one, as I say, I just, it, didn't, it didn't have the impact with me that The Handmaid's Tale did. I mean, in terms you mentioned the fact that you had the opportunity to meet her and, and spend some time and have a chat with her. And is there a kind of sense of you kind of, I don't know if awestruck is the right word, but you're just thinking, you know, having, having read this book and admired it and her, her writing, and then you get the chance through your work to be able to actually sit down uh-huh. and chat to her one writer to another. That must have been a, a great experience. Yeah, well, she's quite a scary lady because um, she's so clever. And that does happen to me. I do get kind of starstruck and I just do get struck dumb. I've met loads of big names, people that I hugely admire. And it's not always a good idea to meet the people that you admire because you kind of go off them sometimes. But not certainly not in that case, not in any way. If anything, she was quite open and quite friendly and quite chatty. But she doesn't suffer fools, so you have to be careful what you say to her. And is, is that book then, now that it's signed by, is that one of your treasured literary possessions? Oh, yeah, that's the one that uh, if the house was burning down, I'd run back in and get. Only that one, actually. <laughs> Even before any of your own books? <laughs> leave, leave, leave my own ones. Because <laughs> I suppose it's nice, you know, and again, I, I'm guessing that people that have, you know, when they come to your book signings or, you know, they get the chance to meet you, it's that idea of, you know, the relationship you have as a reader with the author is on the page, but then when you actually can make that a, a, a real life thing. And again, when readers are meeting you, it must be nice for them to then chat to the person that's put these, these words on the page that they've enjoyed. Yeah, but it's a lot for me to live up to because they think that everything that comes out of my, my mouth is going to be hilariously funny <laughs> or, or, or very wise and witty or something. And um, no, that's a bit of a letdown for them. I'll take you on to the next question, and again, this is, is one that I think sometimes people have difficulty with, only because when I say, tell me a book that you would recommend to anyone, it's difficult to choose just one book. So you gave, you gave me a, a three, and then you said three, three, of, three of many, and the first of those was Room by Emma Donoghue. 
I would recommend that to anyone because I actually read that as a, you know, because I kind of had to read it for a class book and I literally couldn't turn the pages quick enough. You know, my, my finger was just a blur. It was so exciting. But it's a really literary book. It's a really good sort of experiment that really works. It's written in the voice of a five-year-old child whose whole world is this little room. And his mother has been abducted and held prisoner there. And he has been the result of this man coming to her room every night. And all the strategies that the, the mum has to employ to, to keep the wee boy stimulated, but also just to keep alive. And it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read. But also it's a kind of read. It's not a girly book, not a boy, a, you know, a man's book. It's a book that anyone could read. And it's a book that's exciting and will definitely keep you engaged to the last page. Is that, does that ever frustrate you, the fact that sometimes, I, don't, I know it's sometimes publishing can be guilty of that, of trying to pigeonhole books, because I always kind of feel you're either going to enjoy a book or you're not, and there's probably books that me, for example, as a man, would have enjoyed, but they're not marketed to me, and vice versa, yeah. and you think, which I always think absolutely. is quite narrow-minded. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's all sorts of tricks that the publishers got up to as well. Do you remember there was a book called, I think it was The Long Narrow Road to the North or something like that? Really, it was a really harrowing book. It was about these people on the the death railway and all these Australian guys and how it was just really, really harrowing, really, really horrible. But there was a kind of fleeting love story in it, very fleeting. But it was dressed up. See, if you looked at the cover, it was a picture of a woman and a picture of a rose or something like that. You would think, oh, well, this is a, a romance. This is a, a book that women can read, you know. I mean, of course, anyone can read it. But yeah. really, that was a that was a kind of man's war book. So that's that's how you, as I would imagine, if I was a publisher, that's what I would do. I would put little pink things on the <laughs> <laughs> because it's women that read, you know. The seventy or eighty percent of readers are women. I always remember one of the best examples my dad ever gave me in terms of just read anything is that I remember bumping into him in the train coming home from work one day and he was coming home from work and as I'm walking along the carriageway I saw him up ahead sitting reading the Women's Weekly that he'd bought for my mum. Quite, quite the thing and I thought, <laughs> I didn't think at the time, I went and sat somewhere else but afterwards I thought that's quite good that he's just showing, just read what you want, read anything. Yeah, that's a real man. <laughs> He's not scared. It's really cute. Actually, it's a lovely story. You mentioned in terms of room, and then you'd also mentioned earlier on I think another book where you you were teaching it. Is that when you were teaching? Are you are you giving scope to choose whatever literature you want, or is it within certain confines? No, I I usually try and pick books that. Uh, the, if the, the students are reading these books not for pleasure they're reading them to learn from them and to, to learn whatever devices are used in the books and how good how well this comes across and I mean it's a tremendous um, learning tool but for me it's great for me because you know the students are always really smart so they're always picking up things that I might not have noticed before and that just enhances my reading of it and then I can pass that on to the next group sort of thing you know I mean you go to uni to learn and that's as much the lectures as the students, you know. And does that change how you read as well? Because you're maybe then, when you're reading a book, you're looking at what's, ha- you know, how it's constructed and, and what's happening within it, rather than just reading it, you know, the way I would just pick up a yeah. book and just read the, the narrative. It does. It kind of, it, it doesn't, it, I was going to say it spoils it. No, it doesn't spoil it, but it does have an impact on it, yeah. It's like a musician. A musician doesn't just hear a song and la, 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 sings along with it. They're probably analysing, you know, what, how what's going on with the drums or what's going on with uh, the bass and all of that and how all the everything meshes together and that's kind of the way you do kind of start analyzing especially working in creative writing you're, you're always looking for things that you can use to uh, illustrate points 
whether it be good point of view, whether it be a voice or dialect or anything, something that some writers do really well. I'd mentioned there that you had said there was another couple of books that you'd, you'd mentioned for a recommendation. The other one, or one of the other ones was Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. Yeah, I love that book. I mean, I've never taught that book. I just devour anything that uh, David Mitchell produces. I've really liked his work. But Cloud Atlas was quite a big, long book, and it was quite kind of hard book to stick with. I really liked the device that he used, this kind of like he would start a story and he'd leave you on a kind of high point a kind of cliff edge, and then he start another story, and then he start another story. So he started about, and they were all related to to each other one way or another. So he built this kind of like half of a half of a pyramid, and then he got to the top, and then he told the whole story, and then he went back down the other side by telling the ends of the stories that he'd begun, if you know what I mean. So it was a really interesting device. The, the verve and the energy in the writing was tremendous, all the different characters. But there was a really cracking story in it that I remember. And it was, I think this may have been the central story, the one that kind of bridged between the two halves of each story. And it was about young women who worked in a, some sort of an oriental version of McDonald's and they earned so many badges until they went to you know, whatever word we use for it, but they would be going off to heaven. They'd work hard and get these badges and then they'd go off to heaven. But in fact, what happened was they were kind of humanoid robots and they basically just get melted down again and re remade as new human robots sort of thing. And it kind of made me think, well, that's what happens to us. That's what happens to everybody. But they 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 had this whole idea of, uh, oh, when you get these so many stars, then you go off to this wonderful place. And this is the story we're told with religion. You know, you work your ass off all your life and then you go to heaven. And instead of which, all your, your uh, component parts of your body just get recycled somewhere in the, in the world. Parts that are your body will become, I don't know, a bird or a fish or something. <laughs> Well, will, you know, I'll keep being recycled time and time again. So right. that's why I really loved that story for that reason. The third of the, the recommendations that you gave me was uh, a Beryl Bainbridge novel. That's Every Man for Himself. Now, that is a really good book for so many different reasons. But one of the reasons uh, that I used that, I used to use that, was because it's set on the Titanic. There's nobody in the world that doesn't know what happened in the Titanic. We all know what happens at the end. How do you write a book where everybody already knows the ending? How do you build tension? How do you build suspense? You know, how do you keep the reader engaged? And that, that is a fantastic example of that because of all the kind of, um, a set in the, these kind of posh, very upper class, focuses mostly on the posh upper class customers, what do you call them, passengers. You, you get all embroiled in that and you kind of forget that the ship's about to sink. But there's loads of clues and loads of things happening. I thought it was a fantastic book, but also it's a kind of examination of class as well. It's not just an entertaining story. It's a lot more than that. It's a great book. It's funny, I noticed that it came out, I think, a year before the film. So, it, it, you know, for I'm presuming for Beryl Brainbridge, it's, it's actually perfect timing because the book would have come out and they get the initial response, and then obviously the film comes out, and Titanic's in everybody's consciousness, and then there's this novel yeah. that's just sitting there. She must, yeah. she, she won a watch with that one. Well, she I mean, she, I think she worked pretty hard all her life, and she never really got the recognition she deserved. So good. I hope she did sell loads and loads of books after that film came out. And obviously, her her book had the added bonus of not having Celine Dion singing any soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was a wee CD in the back with it on it.
You're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, the writer, Laura Marnie. And Laura, we've jumped from several books that you would recommend to anyone to that million-dollar question, the book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And the book that you've chosen is <gasps> The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn. Now, let me explain, because I feel bad saying <laughs> I wouldn't be paid to read it again, because that is actually literally the case here, because this was a book... I use it as a kind of learning tool because it has every kind of device, every cliche in the book. It's got the dark, spooky house. It's got the creaky doorknob. You name it, it's got it all. If, if that's the kind of thrill ride you're looking for, I would say it works. I mean, sold a lot of books, a hell of a lot of books. But it's so cliche-ridden that you feel that the guy's just quite cynical he just thought yeah I'll just use that I'll use that I'll use that and he's just somehow just thrown it all together it's a kind of cynical exploitation of the genre and also I didn't really enjoy it. it's not my kind of book but as I say I, I, I read it to read with the students in terms of what what all these because quite odd you can learn a lot from a book that you don't like you can say, well, what is it I don't like about it and in this case it is all these kind of signposted cliches You'll even have people going, no, things like that, you know. The students complained bitterly. <laughs> they hated it. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, now, shall I scrap that from the reading list or not? Because when you get that strong a reaction, that's quite good because you need a bit of a bun fight to get everybody excited, you know. But as I say, I've since left my job at the uni. Woohoo! And I will, so I will not be paid to read that book. <laughs> Um, I have to say, AJ Finn's the pen name of a guy called Dan Mallory. And when I was just having a wee look about the book and, and what was interesting, and again, I'm not sure, you know, sometimes, well, books often get a wee blurb either on the front or the back uh -huh. just to try and catch readers' attention. So I, I picked out three here that were on The Woman in the Window. The first is, the quote is, one of those rare books that really is unputdownable. And that was Stephen King said that. Oh, yeah. The second one was <laughs> Twisted to the Power of Max. That was Val McDermott. And then Jenny Colgan said, Dense, brilliant, and unforgettable. So there you are. Well, who am I to argue <laughs> with those titans? <laughs> no, they're actually right. They're actually right. It really is a page turner because you're thinking, oh, what's, what scary, creepy thing's going to happen next? But no, not for me. Not my kind of book. Because it's funny, like, you know that sometimes, and I think it was, as you mentioned, it's, it was a bestseller, it was in various bestseller lists, and I, I remember having a conversation in a previous podcast with someone that was talking about the Da Vinci Code, and that's the classic example uh -huh. of a, that's a, it's a page turner, it's a thriller, but actually when you read it, it always strikes me, and it struck me when I read it, I thought, it'd been quite good if somebody could actually have read that and edited it first, because it was still been a, yeah. a thriller, but it was just like so many things that you thought... If you were if you're starting off, or as you say, if you, when you're teaching people, you would be putting red lines through all the things that end up in this bestseller. Yeah, but so many people love that book. Well, I, I'm not sure if uh, I, I will ever uh, go to the woman in the window. I think I'm more likely to take the, nah. the, that you're thumbs down than Stephen <laughs> King's thumbs up. See, there's a there's a perfect example. Now, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying this to to annoy Stephen King because I don't think he, he, he gives a damn what I've got what I've got to say about it but Stephen King I think Stephen King is brilliant at stories he's really 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 good at stories all the films are great but a lot of the writing there's not the characterisation there there's not the, the depth of characterisation for me anyway that's why I don't really rate Stephen King although I do think he's an amazing storyteller 
if someone was to say to me, would you rather read a Stephen King book or watch a Stephen King movie? I'd always go for the movie because they're better done. They're books that are written to be made into movies. Did you ever read his book, you know, Stephen King on writing? Oh, I thought that was great. I yeah. thought that was a great book. That was a really good book. But that's because that's just him. That's just the guy just writing. You know, he's just telling it how it is. Because I also like the, the context of that book where he started writing it and obviously that terrible road accident where yeah. he him down and nearly killed him. And then that's his kind of, it's almost like part of his rehabilitation that he went back and he was writing the book. It was, it was absolutely fascinating just about him as well as his whole, the way he works and the way he writes. Yeah. Well, we'll recommend Stephen King on writing and we'll just leave The Women in the Window by A.J. Finn for, for all, those, all those students that will probably be cursing you from now until eternity. Um, I mean, in terms of you just mentioned that, you know, you're not at the university anymore and I take it, you know, you were there for quite a while and it must have been something that you did enjoy, just that, you know, that whole teaching aspect of, you know, as well as, as writing yourself, of just then getting into the whole nitty gritty and then maybe just seeing some burgeoning talent that was coming through that course. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a fantastic thing about that course, is that community of writers. I mean, when you're a writer, it's quite a lonely old job sitting in your lonesome, turning out a couple of thousand words a day, you know, whereas when you've got that community of writers, there's always new ideas coming in. There's always people, as you say, hugely talented students coming in. It's just a great, you know, nobody feels weird. Everyone feels accepted as a writer sort of thing, you know. And no, it's a really, really good environment for that. And I, I would say I probably do miss that uh, aspect of it is the, the community aspect. And, you know, because other writers know what you're talking about. Is there also that element of, I wonder, you know, whenever you've students that have come through your course and you've kind of mentored them, whether it's a, a year, two years, five years down the line, then you see them and they're published and they're, they're starting to develop their own career. And you, is there a, a sense of pride in, you know, even having a wee bit to do with that journey? Absolutely, of course. Uh -huh. I mean, the younger uh, students, you see enormous talent. And it might take them 10, 15 years before they, they actually, you know, get to the stage where they've got something to publish but you know that they've got huge talent if that's the way they want to go they're going to they're going to make it it's a, a lovely part of the job it's it's been an absolute privilege for me but now obviously now i suppose it gives you more time to just to concentrate on your own writing because I, I, i'm guessing teaching such a demand on your time because especially that kind of that kind of work where there's well, a lot of intense it wasn't there's a lot of reading yeah and sometimes you know students will just come in and go Oh, and here's something I, <laughs> I knocked out over the weekend and they'll go, whoop, and it's like, you know, 40,000 words or more or something. Um, so, yeah, that, that does take up time. But to be honest, I mean, I never really, I was never an academic. I was never a full-timer. I was never really interested in becoming part of the university machine. Um, so I went there and I worked part-time. And then when I, then I took a step back and worked even more part-time. In fact, and so there for fewer hours. So that suited me perfectly. But at the moment, what I'm doing is my own projects, you know. Um, I'm learning a language. I'm working on a new business project. I'm doing my own writing. I'm, I'm very happy to just be doing my own thing. We're on to the last question in the podcast, and that is uh -huh. always the, the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not reading as much as I would normally read um, because I've been studying Spanish and I've been reading in Spanish. So I've hardly been reading in English at all. But I did read that book and 
to be honest, the, the title didn't inspire me. I thought American Marriage just sounds really domestic and well, anything with the title American doesn't really appeal to me straight off. But I have to say it was a great book. It's a story about contemporary American life for white people and black people. It's a story about race and a story about fathers. But more, more than anything, it's like a test of loyalty and marriage. I'll tell you a wee bit about it. It's a young couple, a young black couple get married. The guy's a bit of a player, you know, he's had a wee affair here and there. And they've only been married a year. And they have a bit of a fallout. So they end up in this motel. And while the wife is having a bit of a rant, the guy goes to get some ice. You know how, like, in America, they all go to the soda machine. So he goes to the soda machine. Oh, he helps a lady. There's a lady there, and she can't carry her ice bucket or whatever. So he helps this lady. And then that night, she accuses him of raping her. And he goes to prison for 12 years. And then it's everything that happens after that. How does how does his wife how does his wife cope with that? How does his his family cope with that? Does she wait twelve years for him to come back or what? You know, it's really an interesting book about modern race relations in America, and it's very opposite. Is that the right word? Yeah, very yeah. apt for for what's going on just now. I don't know when it came out. I think it just came out in two thousand two thousand eighteen. Because apparently it was on Barack Obama. I think publishes a, a summer reading list every year. It became a thing when he was president and he's kept it going, obviously, since he, he was out of office. And that was that summer, that was a book that was on his reading list. I think Oprah had recommended it. She's apparently producing a film adaptation of it as well. Oh, I think it'll be a great film. I think it'll be a fantastic film. So it's obviously a big novel. And, and as you say, particularly given you know what's been going on in America over the last three or four years, it's probably... A book that people would want to read or, or maybe need to read? I mean, it's a book that also um, asks uh, not not just white people, but black people to, to think about not not so much their prejudices, but their expectations and their loyalties. It's really a book about loyalty, class loyalty, race loyalty. can't recommend it too highly. I'd asked you when I was saying to you earlier on about when you were, when you were teaching and how that impacted on the, the, the way you read books. Are you now finding that kind of transition back to just, as you say, maybe you're not Enjoying doing a lot them. in English? Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying to pick some fancy form of words for the question, but yeah, are you enjoying books again? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I really, really loved that. And I read a spate, I went through a wee, because I mean, I'm a reader. I, that's some, I used to go through a tremendous amount of books. But at the moment, as I say, because I've got other things going on, I'm studying and whatnot, I've not really had that delicious time to sit down and read. My husband said to me the other day, he said, oh, let's just have a reading day. And we both, oh, yes, fantastic. Sitting about, drinking cups of tea, reading your book, having a wee snooze whenever you want, wake up, read your book some more. Who, who does that nowadays? Who has the luxury to do that? Yeah, it sounds you know? perfect. It was a really nice day. Do you know, it's funny, I don't know whether, you know, obviously with the lockdown here, that people maybe have had a wee bit more time to be able yeah. to, because particularly when we weren't really allowed out, apart from that one hour of exercise, that, that maybe it's given people that time where they didn't have before to actually maybe sit and, and read books that otherwise would just be piling up and piling up. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, if you're stuck in the house, you might as well, if you, if you can't go there in your, in your body, you might as well go there in your mind to wherever you want to go. When I when I wrote um, my best friend has issues, it was because I was missing Barcelona. I, I had lived in Barcelona. My husband wasn't keen to go back. He was like, "No, we've been there enough. We're not going back." And I was really missing it and really, really wanting to go back. And I thought, "Well, what I'll do is I'll just write a book about Barcelona, and that way I'll be in Barcelona every day in my head." It was great. Right, that's a great idea. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> 
maybe I should do that set all my books. In fact, the, the most recent book that I wrote was set in Tossa de Mar, which is up the coast a wee bit, uh, on the Costa Brava. Beautiful, cute little town. I absolutely love uh, the Costa Brava because of it, because I'm a mad snorkeler. That's my thing, my hobby. And uh, you don't get great sn- snorkeling in Barcelona, but you do up in the Costa Brava. It's fantastic. The water's lovely and warm. Because the other thing, you know, I was saying to you about then going back to enjoying reading again, getting this time back, is it, is it then you mentioned that there's a whole variety of things that you're, you're involved in, but just even getting more time just to do your own writing, is that, is that again, yeah. a, a benefit of maybe not having to teach? Yeah, it is, absolutely. I mean, now, I can, now I'm my own boss. I wake up in the morning, I go, right, what am I going to do today? I'm going to do that and that and that and set my own schedule. You know, it's great. The libraries aren't open, but uh, I normally I normally like to write in the library just because of a kind of more studious atmosphere there. But uh, the libraries aren't open just because still of the COVID. And to be honest, I'm not sure I would be going back because uh, it's just safer to work at home. Well, we'll certainly, hopefully, look forward to to seeing what what the next what, what the next book brings, where it's set, and what it's going to be called as well. So. It's set in Tossa de Mar, and I don't know what it's called at the moment. I've <laughs> studiously avoided a title just now. <laughs> keep us, keep us waiting. <laughs> well, listen, Laura, it's been really nice talking to you on the podcast. If anybody wants to find out of any of Laura's book choices or the book that she couldn't be paid to read again, uh, you can go to my <laughs> website, www.paulcuddy.com. Every guest has their own page, and I just list all the, the book choices. But as I say, thanks for joining us, Laura. It's been really nice talking to you. Okay, nice to see you too, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.